Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and there is less than 50 days until the inauguration and the official start of Joe Biden's presidency. While the Biden campaign has begun the official transition and the Trump administration has started working with the incoming administration, one notable figure has declined to accept that reality, President Donald Trump. That has produced one of the weirdest transitions in U.S. presidential history, in which everyone but the sitting president is working towards the reality that he will not be in the White House come January 20th. To understand what the hell is going on, I called up Alex Thompson, a national political reporter for Politico, who covered the Biden campaign and is now running the Transition Playbook, a newsletter focused on the transition. We spoke about the next 50 days, how Biden's cabinet is shaping up, whether his administration marks a return to D.C. normalcy, and what his first few months in office will look like. Alex Thompson is a national reporter for Politico, in charge of the Transition Playbook newsletter. Alex, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is probably one of the weirdest transitions in modern history, and frankly, I'm a little bit jealous that you get to cover it so closely. It's weird because the current president of the United States has refused to concede the election, while everyone in D.C., from Republicans to Democrats, are acting like he has conceded. Could you start by giving us a broad overview of where the transition stands right now? Well, I would also add the fact that they are trying to uh, basically staff up and add four th- potentially 4,000 personnel all remotely. So you're basically doing all Zoom interviews, Zoom coffees. A lot of the people in the transition aren't even in D.C. They have this enormous uh, office space in the Department of Commerce building, and it's almost completely empty um, because they're just not not doing it. So in addition to that, you're absolutely right. The Trump show goes on and you know, it's, you know, even days when Joe Biden is like out there and he's taking questions and he's like announcing his economics team, it's still getting overshadowed by whatever the the latest like Trump lawsuit or Rudy Giuliani press conference um, that's that's going on. So um, but in the meantime, while like all this craziness is happening, huge, significant decisions are being made that are basically, you know, in some ways could make or break the Biden administration because, you know, uh, people that have studied transitions will tell you, and I happen to believe this is true, is that, you know, the, the hundred days before the inauguration are are usually just as important, if not more important than the first hundred days of the administration, mm-hmm. um, despite some of the conventional wisdom that it's like all hundred days based, like whoever the decisions you're making now about who is in the room with you in that Oval Office to make these decisions, that's what really ends up mattering the most. There were a lot of issues with the General Services Administration, which is the agency charged with funding the transition from one president to another. It was dragging its feet on releasing those funds given Trump uh, has not yet conceded. Is the Biden team now getting funding? Are they getting coronavirus briefings, national security briefings? Yes, they're getting the presidential daily brief. And most critically, the, the thing that the GSA was holding up, I mean, there were enough uh, rich Democrats out there that were willing to just like give money to the transition to cover salaries and everything else. The real issue is that uh, the Biden transition team could not communicate with the federal, with the Trump administration, with the federal agencies that they're going to be staffing up. You know, there was this whole infrastructure laid out in the law where it's the, the administration has to uh, has to prepare for the transition. And so does the transition, the outside transition, but you can't start the process until they can actually talk with one another. 
And that was really what the GSA was holding up. And every single day that you wait is just like missed opportunities. And, you know, this was especially, you know, in in retrospect, important during uh, the 2000 election. And when there was like a a delay of about 37 days while Bush v. Gore was sorted out. And it was interesting, the 9-11 Commission later concluded that one thing that sort of made the Bush administration, uh, you know, that, that could have helped the Bush administration perhaps stop 9-11 or detect and sort of connect the dots that were available was if they had been able to actually staff up their administration quicker. So, you know, every single day it can be a huge lost opportunity there. Wow. You know, that, that really puts in stark relief how important it is to have a normal transition. Now, is there any cooperation between the Biden team and the Trump administration? I mean, for all the animosity between Trump and Obama after the 2016 election, Obama still had Trump over the White House within days, and Obama officials worked with the Trump transition to set up the new administration. Is that sort of cooperation happening yet? Yes. And so far, what it appears is that the sort of the federal bureaucracy, you could call them the deep state, whatever you want to call them, you know, they are sort of just doing the job that, uh, and so far, we have not gotten any significant reports of political appointees interfering in that process despite what trump is doing i think there is a recognition it's it's this very like i mean you sort of referenced it earlier there's this very weird kabuki theater going on of like not calling joe biden the president-elect but like everything they're doing is 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 suggests they know he's gonna be the next president so it's this very uh just uh odd thing that's going on. Despite all Trump's bluster, it looks like the Trump uh, White House, the Trump administration is uh, working with Biden to make sure that, you know, he has what he ha- what he needs uh, to staff up the next administration. That must be such a surreal experience to be sort of working on this transition with the entire Trump administration, except for the man leading the administration at the top, who is out there recording 46 minute long videos saying that the election was stolen from him. And it's like, he's the president, he should be talking to Biden. And I imagine a lot of people in the Trump administration are just sort of ignoring that and saying, it's actually not that important that Trump speaks to Biden, as long as everyone else in the administration is cooperating on handing over the baton to Biden's team. Yeah, this is sort of one of the, in my mind, this is like sort of one of those uh, classic norms uh, focused coverage areas where it's like, like, uh, they you know, in my mind, I think it would be much a much bigger deal if the if the administration was not cooperating with Biden, but but Trump was talking was talking to Biden. Sure, right? Like the the fact that Trump is not talking to Biden actually is not all that consequential, but because it is sort of a norms based thing of just like this is what you're supposed to do. Um, I think that uh, that ends up see- being seen as like this huge impactful thing, but ultimately. It doesn't really matter. What does matter is if the administration is actually cooperating with the Biden transition team. And so far, it appears they are. So it's sort of like it'll be a big deal on MSNBC that Trump is you know, refusing to hand over power. But the fact is that the transition is actually working sort of normally. And I think that's why Biden, right after the election, when he got questioned in a press conference and a bunch of reporters were asking him, about, you know, Trump violating norms and not conceding the presidency. And Biden said, you know, we're moving on with the transition. It doesn't really matter that much what Trump says about it. He kind of shrugged it off as a problem. 
just to switch gears here, what can you tell us about the Biden cabinet as it's being formed? Uh, well, so far, we only have two cabinet announcements. Or sorry, mm-hmm. three. My, my fault. We have uh, uh, Ali, Ali Mayorkas, or Alejandro is his, his, like, uh, his official name, but everyone calls him Ali. Mm-hmm. He is a veteran of the Department of Homeland Security. He was head of USCIS. He was deputy, uh, uh, deputy secretary in the latter part of the Obama administration. He is the architect of DACA. Um, but there was also some open questions among activists and, and the left about, you know, the Obama administration to a lot of parts of the left sort of betrayed, uh, you know, some parts of the Latino community by being very aggressive on deportations in order mm. to sort of uh, get some political credit with Republicans. Now, um, but Ali Mayorkas really worked the phones with Latino groups over the last two months and to the extent that finally a few Latino groups actually let slip they had been meeting with him. We reported <laughs> that uh, last last week uh, before he was announced. And so he he sort of calmed their fears and he's, uh, he's head of DHS. You have Tony Blinken, uh, who's going to be Secretary of State if he's confirmed. Uh, what's interesting about him is, A, he's been with Biden forever. This is a classic example of like, that like Biden rewarding the people that are closest to him. Um, he was deputy secretary of state during uh, part of the Obama administration. And uh, what's going to be interesting in his confirmation hearing, something to watch very carefully for is he co-founded this firm called West exec. Um, and it, it was basically sort of a holding place for a lot of Obama administration veterans where they were doing like not lobbying, but consulting for a lot of corporate clients. Now, because it was consulting and not lobbying, we actually don't know who those clients are. And a lot of Republicans in the Senate are demanding they release the full client list (laughs) in order to actually have a vote. So that's going to be something to really watch for. And then the third person we know is Janet Yellen for Treasury, uh, former Federal Reserve Director, was a classic example of of Biden trying to find exactly the middle of the Democratic Party, (laughs) where he's like, I don't want to alienate the left and I don't want to alienate the center. She is like the perfect choice for that. So now those cabinet picks, I will say they seem fairly uncontroversial. And it seems like a lot of his picks for staff in the new government have come with not much controversy. Would you agree with that? Are there picks that have been made in the last couple of weeks that have angered either leftists or conservatives? So the uh the answer to your question you're right on both counts here and that (laughs) um the biden strategy uh appears so far that they don't want to get bogged down in partisan senate fights right from the get-go any sort of position that's senate confirmable they want to move quickly and they do want to do it without much controversy they don't want to get sucked in um and they sort of want to create a little bit of like you know, congressional momentum, you know, sort of get some like uh, grease on the wheels. And that's what you're saying. Now, uh, that strategy appeared to have at least some blemishes this week when they announced that Nira Tandon was going. That's to- who I was fishing for. There you go. Uh, I, I was getting to it. I promise. Plenty of Nira, uh, Nira content in this podcast. So Nira Tandon is also one of those rare people that that somehow is like uh, very, very progressive and yet has somehow angered both the, the left and the right. Um, and, you know, it, it immediately to give you an idea of like how much anger there is 
at her in the Republican community, the communications director for John Cornyn, who's the second ranking, highest ranking Republican in the Senate, said that she is dead on arrival, um, at the, like literally an hour after she was announced. And then a lot of Republicans sort of joined in. It's also not even clear, to give you an idea of sort of the levers of power, like she has to go through Lindsey Graham's uh, committee and Lindsey Graham wouldn't even commit to holding a hearing for her. So, um, and then she also, you know, she has a lot of support among like the left-leaning senators, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, already said they would vote for her. Um, the real open question here is Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders and, and her really clashed. Uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, Faz Shakir, during the primary is uh, not, uh, let's say, fans of <laughs> Neera Tandon. And it played out very, very publicly. Um, and as a result, like, you know, it, it, and I, I, you know, Bernie, I believe, is on the an, uh, one of the committees that we'll need to do, you know, to, uh, that she'll have to get through. And I imagine, uh, I can't imagine Bernie will, uh, will end up voting against her. I would be very surprised. But I think that Bernie is going to really enjoy having that one-on-one -on -one meeting and seeing her uh, <laughs> try to convince him. And I think she's going to, I think he's going to make her sweat. That's what's going to happen there. <laughs> Not to spend too much time on Neera Tandon, but w what has she done to draw so much ire from both the right and the left? You know, she's tweeted a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's as far as I can tell. It's just it's just an aggressive dedication to tweeting. Yeah, um, she just uh, you know I think she just like has uh, an insatiable desire to attract controversy on Twitter.com. I mean, if she wasn't on Twitter, would anyone care that the head of the Center for American Progress? was being appointed to OMB. I don't no. think so. But she loves to tweet and she loves to fight on Twitter and yeah. she loves to attack people on Twitter. And uh, as a result, she's made herself a lot of enemies. And uh, I guess that's, uh, a, a, you know, it, it's good guidance, I guess, for me. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, never tweet. <laughs> yeah, you know, I see it as sort of the Rick Grinnell phenomenon to a different degree, of course, but I see some parallels there. Now, Joe Biden seems to have this idea that you touched on a little bit before that he's going to be able to work with Republicans. Now, that's something that would certainly need to happen if Republicans do maintain control of the Senate after these Georgia runoffs. From what you're hearing, is he going to have better success working with Republicans than, say, Obama did? So it's interesting. I'm actually working on a magazine piece on this question right now, and this is feel free to send us any any scoops. Uh, <laughs> uh, <from the> podcast. <laughs> well, well, so this is the this is the to me like this is the question of the, the Biden presidency already mm -hmm. is like can he work with Republicans now? Republicans that worked with the Obama like through the Obama years say that Joe Biden is much, much more adept at working with Congress than Barack Obama was. Um, you know, and Mitch McConnell even, you know, has a good relationship. He said that, uh, it's something I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said like, Joe Biden keeps his word and he doesn't waste his time trying to convince me that I'm wrong. And he just like, he finds a way to, and then Joe Biden to this week said, you know, I find a way for Mitch to say yes without embarrassing himself. And that was very different. Like Barack Obama's sort of uh, negotiating style, according to a lot of Republicans, was like Obama had a much more coherent worldview that he would try to bring people to. 
Mm-hmm. And Republicans in Congress say like, that's just not how things work. Like even if you, like Mitch McConnell's thing was like, even if you convince me, um, I, I, I'm not gonna be able to convince the, my, the, you know, the 49 other members of my caucus. So you're wasting your time. Um, so that's a very long way of saying like Biden is, is, a, is much more adept at negotiating with Republicans in Congress. Now the open question is, is that still possible in this political environment? Like, it, you know, despite Joe Biden's skills, are we just at a different era where the incentives are different and things have changed permanently? And, you know, Joe Biden and his team very strongly believe that uh, we aren't in a different era, that like the, the, the time of bipartisan cooperation is not that, ha- you know, that far in the past. Um, but there's a lot of skeptics, even in his own party, that don't, that believe he's being naive. And so this is sort of the central bet of Biden's presidency, that he can restore this era. And it's going to be what really makes or breaks it. That's interesting, because I remember that being sort of a central tenet of his campaign, this idea that you can return to a previous time that had a lot more bipartisanship, that wasn't as nasty as the Trump era was. Now, I was reading your newsletter, The Transition Playbook, and you were speaking about a section in Obama's book where he was talking about how he would send Biden out to handle the House negotiations because he thought that it would be easier for Republicans to negotiate behind the scenes with Biden because it would really rile up the base to have, you know, Mitch McConnell meeting with Barack Obama. It feels like that's sort of in turbocharge now. Because I've got to imagine the next four years, you're going to have Donald Trump on the sidelines, basically running a campaign, doing nonstop rallies, and any sort of compromise shown by the Republican Party in the Senate or the House to work with the Biden administration, Trump's going to seize on that. And I imagine it's going to make cooperation almost poisonous. Do you see that as a big problem for the incoming administration? Yeah, I mean, the last four weeks have not been very encouraging, uh, Um, given the fact that Mitch McConnell still doesn't say that Biden is the president elect. And our understanding based on, you know, I think Joe, this is Joe Biden has said that he still has to talk to Mitch McConnell. Now, <laughs> I think they're just, they're, they're basically sort of running out the clock here saying like, oh, you know, once Trump is gone, you know, we can, we can really get down to business. But uh, I think you're right. that like, Trump's not going to go away and he's going to put pressure for Republicans to stand in line. And it's going to be, it, it, again, that's like it, it, it's that's why I think this question is so interesting. If, if like Biden can do it, or if it's just not possible now. Yeah, I think it's really funny because I feel like the position that Republican leadership is in right now mirrors, in a lot of ways, Fox News in how it is sort of desperately waiting for Trump to just give it up so that they can all come around and admit the obvious that Biden is going to be the next president. You know, we don't have to like continue this farce anymore. But it's interesting, and I'd say it's probably a smart strategy for the Biden administration or the transition to just say, we're not going to criticize, you know, Biden, as far as I know, is not coming out and calling out Mitch McConnell for not admitting that Trump has lost. And he's saying, we're going to move on with the transition, and then we'll work with the Republicans when they eventually come around to it. Do you have any sense of what the planning is for the inauguration? I imagine it's going to be really weird this year. Trump might not even attend. In fact, I think it's likely that he won't. What's your sense on the inauguration? I think this is going to be the most understated, least expensive (laughs) inauguration that we have had 
in uh in decades probably since the tv era honestly mm. like um because they're not going to allow big crowds there's not going to be any inaugural balls almost certainly i mean that this could change maybe they'll fi figure out some way to do it like outdoors with heaters and stuff but i, I would be very skeptical um there it is going to be much much smaller and um yeah i think you're gonna have but i think even some you know, former presidents aren't going to make it. I think a lot of like the classic, I mean, that's just going to be Trump. I mean, Trump's going to do it because he's not going to concede. He's going to claim the whole thing was rigged. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, I think it, it's not going to be anything close to what we're used to seeing. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's sort of wild that we're back in such a traditional place in terms of an un incoming administration. I mean, the Trump transition back in 2016 had this truly crazy cast of characters. There were total outsiders like Seb Gorka that were now headed to the White House. And I remember Politico and some other outlets were writing these stories about how the Trump administration was completely changing the dating scene in Washington, D.C. And there were a lot of stories about this sort of eruption that was happening. Does this feel like a return to D.C. normalcy? Or is there something forever changed about D.C. by the Trump era? That's a great question. Uh, I, again, I think like as you're, you, we, we sort of talked about before that Biden, Biden by his picks and by his campaign and by his rhetoric is trying to return everything to normalcy, including probably the dating scene. And, uh, but, but I, I think like the open question is like, is there really a back to normal after these last four years? I think a lot of, yeah. I think a lot of people in DC, I think a lot of like the, the cocktail party Georgetown set. I think a lot of the Obama administration uh, veterans, you know, that now live in, you know, the suburbs in Maryland and Virginia, you know, all sort of pine for the more comfortable days. Um, I think even a lot of, you know, a lot of Republicans, you know, the, the AEI crowd uh, also yep. pine for that too. And, you know, maybe they're, maybe they'll, their, their hopes will, will come true. I, personally remain a, a bit skeptical. I, I think like, you know, uh, electing a person like Donald Trump suggests like, you know, that with, uh, with such long shots, I think suggests a level of anger in the country that, um, that perhaps is uh, underestimated, but we'll see, we'll see. Now, the Trump White House, thanks to prolific infighting that was no doubt encouraged by Trump's sort of chaotic management style, was insanely leaky. We really knew everything that was going on in the Trump White House from the moment that he took office. Uh, the Biden team is obviously different. Ben White, your political colleague, said recently that the Biden team is, quote, annoyingly non-leaky, and it's been a shock to the system after four years of torrential leaks. You are covering the transition now. You covered the Biden team during the campaign. Has it been hard for you to glean what's been going on behind the curtain uh, just certainly harder than it is with the Trump administration. I'm actually, it, it's all, it's so, um, it's so non-leaky and guarded to the point of at times, uh, with a few personnel, uh, at the times of being paranoid and sort of like, uh, ridiculously strict and like this, like this coda of silence. Um, and, and like this, in some cases they act like the, the, the leak is the worst possible thing that could ever happen in the fall <laughs> administration. 
um, that, you know, I, I think to an extent, I'm actually even thinking about trying to write a story about all the strategies and some over the top that, uh, that the Biden campaign uses to try to, um, you know, to avoid leaks. It's just sort sounds of like a great story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like, they're so non-leaky, you end up having to write process stories about like all their strategies for not. Leaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It becomes um, a story. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, that being said, uh, once you have an administration, uh, you know, it's a much harder to prevent leaks. It's, it's much harder to stop leaks. Cause just cause the pool of people is expanding. Mm. And, um, but we're going to find out so far, they've done a pretty good job. Most of their big announcements have been so, like, we've had a few, like th- there've been a few cases where word leaked out and was reported before they wanted it to. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the majority of it, whether or not it's their press secretary announcement or their inaugural committee announcement or their, uh, you know, the Janet Yellen announcement, they have sort of, uh, the comms team has been able to sort of like give it to their preferred outlet early and then create this nice big profile. Yeah, you know, I think anything compared to the first four years of Trump is going to look incredibly non-leaky. Just because I remember that first year was insane. There was uh, there would be two different senior White House officials leaking about each other. Yeah, one one of them was always Steve Bannon. (laughs) Now, in that same sense, uh, you know, I imagine that the Biden administration is going to want to signal a departure from the Trump White House. Now, Trump, to his credit, was always available. He was always giving random gaggles and press conferences to reporters, and he constantly spoke his mind and was actually arguably very accessible as a president. But the White House did not hold regular briefings, and when they did, they were often dishonest from the White House podium. Do you think that the administration, the Biden administration, is going to have daily briefings and be open with reporters' questions, or do you worry that they're going to perhaps be guarded in how they treat the White House press corps? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm not worried about it because I don't think I can do about it. Um, <laughs> I think they're going to try their very best to go back to being boring and not making news unless mm-hmm. they want to make news. Um, and are and like, you know, in, in some ways you got to like you got to like it's sort of a game respect game. Like I respect that's like what they want to do. And so far they've been good at it. Um, uh, but like it's sort of like a fun challenge to be like, all right, well, you guys have stepped up your game. I'll step up mine. And anything you can get from them is going to be a challenge, but it's going to be fun. You know, the last four years have arguably been some of the craziest, weirdest presidential years in history. And you don't sound like you're too worried that the next four years could be quite boring. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I better not because I'm planning to cover the White House. <laughs> so, um <laughs> I don't know. I think every White House, even even in its own way, is is always really interesting. And honestly, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you felt this way, but I've certainly felt uh, that like the last, even even though like incredibly important, significant things were happening, um, you know, it, to an extent, I felt like some of the Trump coverage uh, was was a bit. Um, old and boring mm-hmm. by the end because it's like how many trump fuming stories can we can we possibly read or Wall, walls out? closing in lashing yeah. out yeah, yeah yeah the walls closing in <laughs> it's, like, it's like like they, like there was almost nothing more to say about the the man everything that could have been possibly said about trump the man 
uh, I think was sort of like done. So I think it's sort of interesting to always get a new cast of characters, their own different foibles and psychosis. You, you know, I agree with you there because I, I'm going to speak candidly here. I would often say to people in the last couple of years of the Trump administration that it did get quite boring. There were obviously very consequential things happening, as you note. The scandal started to get boring because they would all be about some terrible thing Trump had said behind closed doors. It wasn't particularly consequential as far as history goes. He wasn't enacting these massive policy changes that were incredibly consequential and scandalous. It was a lot of him saying weird, crass things and, and those comments getting leaked out. I found it to be somewhat more embarrassing than actually interesting. Now, I'm going to ask you to put on your prognosticator cap for a moment. You've been studying and reporting on the Biden administration as it comes into shape. I know it's early, uh, but I have a hunch that the first few months of the new presidency will involve a lot of repealing of Trump executive orders and the like, in the same way that uh, Trump's presidency, at least the first year, involved a lot of walking back things that the Obama administration had done. What do you think we can expect? Have they been signaling their first moves yet? Yes, 100%. Especially if you're going to have a divided Congress, you're already seeing them already signal they're going to do a lot of executive orders. Um, I mean, the, the ones that you can, like, 100%, these are definitely going to happen, are, you know, a, a repeal of the, the travel ban. Um, um, you're going to see uh, a reinstitution of DACA. You're going to see, go, like, a, a reentrance into the Paris Climate Accord. And I would all and I would think you're going to see just a raft of uh, various immigration related executive actions to sort of reverse some of the, you know, Trump era, Stephen Miller era executive refugee actions. caps, et cetera. Well, the refugee caps is, is going to be really, really interesting because Biden is already committed even just recently as two weeks ago to uh, expand that cap. I mean, to basically put it at a, around Obama ash ish levels mm -hmm. um but at the moment that's like six times the, yeah. the the amount that we have right now um <laughs> and it will be interesting to see if there's if there's any sort of fallout or backlash to that but i would expect the refugee levels to go way way up and then what's gonna something to really watch for especially given all the events that have happened over the last few weeks is what he does with the iran deal now he's already committed to going to, to going back into the deal if Iran returns the compliance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Iran seems eager to do that in exchange for getting off the economic sanctions the Trump administration put in. They, they are still playing a bit coy on uh, how that all looks. And I would just I would watch it very carefully because I'm a bit skeptical that we're going to return to the Iran deal of 2015. Um, but it's very possible that they're going to try very hard to return to some sort of semblance of a deal. Do you see any or do you have a sense already of broader policy that they're going to be trying to implement in uh, over the course of the four year administration that's not reinstating things from the Obama administration that Trump had repealed? You know, one thing to look out for that, that you know, would be significant for millions of people and that could, in theory, be done by executive action is what they're going to do about student loan debt. Now, there are a lot of people in the progressive wing of the party that are calling for Biden by executive action to uh, basically forgive $50,000 of student loan debt for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there's also some pushback in the center of the party that is like, 
we just lost huge with people that didn't have a college degree and you're just going to go and like, yeah, we, we kept winning with people with college degrees, but we're going to like now just shift basically all of our attention towards like people with college degrees seems like, uh, perhaps not the best strategy and you're going to prompt resentment from people that did pay off their student loans, but it is going to be a big fight. And it's one of the most significant executive actions a Biden presidency could take. Now, I, I think you're going to see a lot of EPA um, actions. Now, what's going to be really, really interesting with the EPA and any environmental um, regulations Biden tries to put in place now, they were already a bit touch and go with the Supreme Court under the Obama administration. Now you have the Amy Comey Barrett 6-3 conservative majority court. Uh, Biden is in a sort of between a rock and a hard place here because if he tries to make his presidency very executive focused because he feels that like Congress isn't playing along, the Supreme Court is going to constrain most likely a lot of his executive action desires. And that's going to just be really interesting. Fascinating. All right. Thank you, Alex. I think we'll end it there. If you're interested in the transitions, if you're interested in anything we just talked about, go and please subscribe to Transition Playbook. Just Google Transition Playbook. It's free. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Alex Thompson on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.